Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. As an organization changes, the role of the founder and the CEO changes with it. And the things which are strengths for a startup founder, entrepreneur, CEO can become liabilities for a maturing organization. One of the things we've learned is that if you can build an evidence base for your impact and that you're generating value for money impact, you're in a great position to raise unrestricted or strategic funding from trusts and foundations, which is obviously the best type of funding to back you as an organization rather than to back a particular project which restricts you and doesn't allow you to spend money where you really need to spend money. I'm very pleased today to introduce John Randall, the founder and CEO of Pease, promoting equality in African schools a rapidly growing and multiple award-winning social enterprise that widens access to secondary education in Africa. Ten years ago, John began working full-time and setting up Pease with the aim to create sustainable and self-sufficient schools which can thrive with government support. Charity now has a network of 28 schools in Uganda and two in Zambia. John has gone on to win the Teach First Ambassador Award and Unlimited Social Enterprise Award, become a member of the Corvosier Future 500 and the Rockefeller Top 100 Next Century Innovators. In 2013, Pease won the UK Charity Awards and the Wise Global Innovation Awards. Thank you very much, John, for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs. It's a great privilege to have an opportunity to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to do so. Can you tell me a little bit about Pease and tell me about your, your own journey in the world of education? Pease is a, is a, a social enterprise sort of stroke charity hybrid and uh, we run a network of secondary schools in Uganda and Zambia which is similar to uh, kind of academy networks in the UK or charter schools in the States in that we uh, we run the schools under uh, uh, public-private partnerships with the governments of Uganda and Zambia. Uh, in 2002, I was I was traveling in uh, Kampala and and uh, uh, Uganda and, and Kenya, and I met a, a guy who was a finance director of a of a primary school in Kampala, and went to visit the school and found there's this huge issue of uh, hundreds uh, in that particular area of kids finishing primary school, not going on to secondary school. And so Pease sort of, our, our, we, we began life uh, before actually Pease began. I, I uh, helped launch a secondary school for some of those kids in that particular area of Kampala. And um, it's sort of grown since then. Right. How big a, a problem is this generally, education in Africa? I mean, it's a big, big topic, and I guess different countries have different systems, some better than others. Are there a couple of generic challenges that you've, you know, identified? Yeah, the the, the big one that we're we're facing is this issue of ninety four percent of kids enrolling in primary school, and then only twenty eight or so percent of kids in Uganda uh, enrolling in secondary school. So there's this sort of education cliff. Uh, as kids drop out during primary school and then drop out between primary school and secondary school. And uh, the problem is exacerbated uh, in rural areas 
and in the poorest communities and it's exacerbated for girls as well who generally access and complete schools at lower lower rates and and girls are particularly prone to dropping out of school uh, as they reach puberty yes yes i i guess it's a, a complex situation because there are many pressures on families i suppose and in different ways from britain or or, or europe to to make ends meet and to, to work and things like that can you talk a little bit about that kind of context in which the situation is arising sure uh well the first thing to say is there there's basic in a country like uganda there's virtually no free secondary schooling at all the government schools are ostensibly free but generally charge hidden fees in one way or another, whether it's as a lunch fee, which actually subsidizes teacher salaries or a parent-teacher teacher association fee or a, a buildings fee. So there are fees that students face. Um, and it's, as I say, only 28% of kids go, go to these schools. And one of the reasons are, the, are these fees. But beyond the fees, there's this second kind of opportunity cost of education, um, which is the idea that uh, by going to school, you're therefore not able to help around the house. You're not able to help in the farm uh, and making money for uh, the family or even just making uh, enough food for to get through the next few months. And in the sorts of communities that Pease works, 90 odd percent of people are working in the agricultural sector and so taking teenagers away from the fields is obviously a sacrifice uh, for families and in school then is seen as a kind of investment decision and what we find is that the vast majority of families and parents hugely value education and so even though these uh, kind of opportunity costs of being in school do uh, are, are are very real. If you can reduce fees down as as low as Pease has, then kids from the very very poorest parts of the communities do go to secondary school, and girls go to secondary school. So it's not an impossible barrier, but it's it's much much harder than uh, than is true in, in the UK context. That's very interesting. You mentioned bringing the fees down. How have you done that? And you mentioned you're a social enterprise and a hybrid. Uh... And I know there are many hybrids around. It, it comes from the territory a little bit here. Can you talk about, you know, your business model and how you went about that in terms of thinking about charging for your services, which I guess is challenging. And in a sense, people would prefer not to have to, um, but yet to be sustainable and, and survive. It's necessary. Yeah. So the, the key for us is is to have a, a balanced focus between access and by access, I mean reducing fees as, as low as they can be to maximize the access to the poorest students and quality and the kind of the proxy for quality might be teacher salaries. So you can increase quality by spending a bit more in the school, but that means you need to bring bring more money into the school, obviously. And then the third thing that is, is always in balance is sustainability. And by that, I mean the extent to which the network needs to be subsidized by philanthropy to remain sustainable over the long run. And the three of those are in constant balance. And we, we're trying to sort of create a scalable approach which uh, which finds the, the right balance between the three. One of the things we've done recently, which is probably the most exciting thing for the future of the organization and potentially the uh, countries we work in more widely, is to agree a deal with the Zambian government where they're going to be funding peace students at a rate of 90% 
of the cost of educating a child in a government school in Zambia. And that amount will actually allow us to lower fees to zero for our day school kids at the same time as um, paying teacher salaries, which are uh, equivalent to those in government schools. And um, most excitingly, it'll allow us to actually uh, have the schools entirely sustainable under their own steam and to pay a management fee into uh, P's central team in Lusaka, who oversee the schools, audit the schools, inspect the schools and act in the way that uh, in the UK system it's called a multi-academy trust acts to actually help the school network improve year on year. Wow, that sounds very exciting. You know, being able to offer free education like that is obviously uh, an ideal world uh, in many ways. It would reduce that, that obstacle and, and those costs. What about the actual ways in which the school is structured and, you know, traditional school, whatever, a secondary school in the UK, which you might be familiar with? To what extent do you work with, you know, the, I guess a traditional model you might think of like the academy or something like that? And to what extent do you think there's potential for other ways of structuring the education, be it in terms of, you know, evening sessions or variable, you know, schedules like that, or just, just generally thinking about the innovation on that level? Or is it something that is very fundamental that works well, the traditional model we have of education? That's a really good question. Um, I, I think what we what we have recognized is that um the the key thing we need to do is look at what are the big things which are obstacles to the provision of quality education and to work uh, across the the most foundational of those up to the higher levels so the temptation in working in education is to dive in on uh exciting kind of uh classroom level I don't know whether it's curriculum or uh, you know uh, I you know, technology in the classroom and things like that without first and foremost making sure schools uh, have really strong financial controls uh, are inspected every year that senior teachers and uh, uh, senior staff are held to account and that teachers know uh, what their expectations are. So boring, really basic foundational uh, management systems and finance control systems are at the heart of school improvement. And no one really talks about them. But actually, we're kind of proud of the of the fact that we concentrate on doing the boring things better. And um, beyond that, in terms of uh, innovation. One of the big things we do is we have a, a director of um, sort of finance and administration of the school who uh, runs the business aspects of the school, who's distinct from the head teacher who concentrates on the, the academics and education side. And that allows both to uh, sort of concentrate on a specific part of that school leadership. And we found that to be particularly important in environments where the finances are such a, a, a challenge and, in, in, uh, you know, you've got to be eking out every saving you possibly can. And the temptation to just um, spend more money than you strictly have and then go bust is, is, uh, is huge for a head teacher under pressure from teachers needing higher salaries. So that's one one innovation. The other um, big thing that we've been doing recently is extending the national curriculums in both countries through something called a literacy and life skills curriculum. And that's really um, helped our, our kids improve literacy at the same time as learning things like health or environmental education. Uh, so we've created that uh, that sort of supplementary curriculum. 
And then um, we're, we've also concentrated uh, in partnership with DFID through the Girls Education Challenge program on making sure that our teachers are trained in something called gender responsive pedagogy, uh, which in one way is just good pedagogy. And basically it's about making sure that the teacher responds to the needs of all the class and not just the most proactive ones who raise their hand, for example, and that they respond in gender, gender sensitive ways and ways which are sensitive to the variability of uh, different uh, students in the class. So those things combine uh, and have have meant that uh, PEASE is, is an, a, able to actually, at the same or lower cost of government schools and other low fee private schools, to have students learning quite a lot more in the time they're with PEASE. So what what is the scale of your activity today and how has that grown? So we started our first uh, PEASE schools in, in uh, 2008 after the pilot school that I mentioned. And... We've grown the network now to 30 schools, of which two are in Zambia and 28 are in Uganda. There's about 14,200 kids across the two countries, the majority obviously in Uganda. And um, we're educating about 1% of kids in, in the secondary education sector in Uganda now. So it's got to the point where um, it's both kind of a significant uh, national level impact and has allowed us to have good conversations with the government and start to be influential to help improve the wider system. Right. What's your vision growth wise over the next, I don't know, five, 10 years? Well, we want to do two things. The first is to continue to grow each of the, the networks in Uganda and Zambia. We're going to, I think, uh, focus a bit more in expanding the network in Uganda from two to 30 schools now that we've got this new funding partnership with the government of Zambia. And uh, we then want to kind of take those two um, partnerships in Uganda and Zambia and help the governments of both countries, um, we hope, turn those partnerships into multilateral partnerships uh, between the government and a large number of um, uh, quality and access focused school providers so that the government can be the government provision can be complemented by high quality uh, not-for-profit private provision. When you say not-for-profit private, what's the distinction you're getting there? Well, we, we regard ourselves as a not-for-profit private provider. So it's a non-state uh, provider who are running schools on behalf of the state rather than in competition with the state under a public-private partnership. And there's a, also a huge sector of kind of private for-profit providers that are running uh, private schools uh, to uh, as as substitutes for weak state systems as uh, in in a for profit way uh, and that that's another sector which is growing on the back of the widespread failure of government systems. I think Pease regards uh, the the sort of the end goal of of our work uh, to to have private providers actually complementing and working in partnership with government rather than working in competition with government. Right, right. That's interesting. And I guess at the heart of this is there's a school. Each school will have its own system. And as you mentioned, that's an area where you're terribly important and probably neglected how it works, the finances, the controls and that kind of thing. 
How easy is that to transfer to other schools and to what extent is that part of your aim to coach other schools to integrate these systems and become more efficient? Yeah, no, that's a really, really important question and one that I think we will be continuing to understand actually over the next few years because um, we're not going to be able to build and run all the schools that Africa needs and we wouldn't want to. And so the question becomes, if we're able to support governments to create regulatory environments in which other networks of schools can start to grow, how can we also help uh, transfer some of the best stuff which is happening in PE schools to other non-state schools? And I think, uh, you know, one of the things we've been doing over the last couple of years is articulating exactly how we're able to outperform the the kind of national norms in our schools. And we created something which has a slightly stupid name of Encyclopedia. And that uh, is a, a kind of a, a manual for how our, how our schools work. And that would become the basis of um, transferring best practice to other providers um, on the back of uh, helping governments create the uh, public-private partnerships that support a wider range of uh, non-state schools. Very interesting. Your own background, I guess, wasn't in management and running organizations. How has that journey been? You talked about the educational side of things and and being struck by what was happening. How has it been managing, growing, running a social enterprise? So (laughs) a lot of hard work and a lot of fun. Um, I think... uh, I'm I'm one of those people that um, I, I guess uh, dive, dives in and then uh, and then works out what to do having having dived in and it's a it's a I guess even a cliched trait of a of an entrepreneur and um, and I'm I'm prepared to to take risks to to try things and then to and feel confident enough to be able to to learn as i as i go and as as i grow feel confident to keep developing and i think you know there's lot lots of uh, those traits are really really great for the first um, three five years of a new startup organization and those traits can then become a liability for a maturing organization that needs to stabilize that needs to consolidate, that needs to de-risk. And an organization like Pease, which is educating 14,000 kids, as an organization changes, the role of the founder and the CEO changes with it. And the things which are strengths for a startup founder, entrepreneur, CEO can become liabilities for a maturing organization. And the way in which I've needed to adapt to that to try and become less ad hoc whilst retaining the kind of dynamism uh, and flexibility that allows you to keep being ambitious uh, is is that's been the most interesting recent sort of leadership um, and management challenge that I've had. Um, but yeah, over the last 10 years, I've kind of learned through and it's, it's almost a cliche now um, a series of mistakes, basically um, charging, charging in, making a mistake, changing tack, making another mistake, and carrying on battling away towards towards the vision. And um, you know, there's there's been lots and lots of times where I've had 
challenges, but we've got a really, really great team now. And so the burden of, of that has been shared by some wonderful colleagues and that's uh, that's allowed me to start really really enjoying you know moving the organization forward journey <laughs> just thinking about you mentioned you know making mistakes and and i guess innovation and looking for new ways of doing things is you know important really important when you're trying to improve things and do things in a new environment can you talk a little bit about attitudes to risk and risk taking also in line with how you've been funded and so forth? Because I guess depending upon who your investors are or who's funding you, that may have an impact on how much you feel you can take risk and what kind of risks you can take. I think that's absolutely right. Risk is is uh, is, is, a, is a really interesting uh, part of uh, strategy and, uh, and leadership. And I think... Um, one of the mistakes people make is that they, they they don't don't get the distinction between someone who someone who can accurately judge risk and someone who might be regarded as a risk risk taker rather than risk averse if you see what i mean yes and, yes um what really matters is is the extent to which you can accurately judge risk and where risk the, the risk reward balance is whether I can do that is another question, but <laughs> the, point, the point stands um, that, that, that it's this, this a kind of constant process of assessing um, whether something really is as risky as you think it is. For example, individually, as a 20-something, uh, lots of people said that must have been a big risk to throw everything in and start up an organization like Pease. And when I look at it, I don't really see it as a, as a risk at all. In the worst case scenario, it would have all failed. I would have gone back between, you know, with my tail between my legs and lived with my parents for a year and then got a job somewhere else because I've, uh, I've been lucky enough to have a good education and uh, we live in an economy which has full employment. So I, I, I kind of, we, we live in a society which I think actually probably overstates a lot of risk and then maybe understates other risks and so my feeling is not that I'm a particular risk taker but that the world is biased towards risk aversion partly because of the stability of our of our society which which uh, just seems to make us more and more prone to being being careful but uh, the other point I was making is the extent to which you do take risks and try new things does need to change as there's more at stake. And uh, for me individually, I've got more at stake now as I've got a family and organizationally, we've got more at stake because there are so many kids already benefiting from our work that if we you know, put all our counters on black and roll the dice, uh, it's suddenly a big loss rather than just uh, potential gain or nothing. Can you talk a little bit about your funding, how you've been funded and how you found that experience and any insights you've had as to, you know, how to do this, how to get, you know, uh, raise capital for, you know, these kind of innovative projects? We've been funded by a range of different organizations. And um, uh, I think one of the most important things we've learned just in the last couple of years is about matching the sort of organization you are with a particular audience and focusing on a particular group of funders. That doesn't mean a single funder, which is obviously very risky, but a single type or two types of funder. And so we've started focusing more on trusts and foundations 
and uh, big aid, so DFID and that type of funder, who have a sophisticated understanding of the problems we're dealing with and enjoy working with an organization that thinks in a bigger picture way and, and creates a model which is hopefully scalable and sustainable and impactful. And we've concentrated less on uh, fundraising from large numbers of individual donors who probably uh, might be more persuaded by the, the heartstrings type fundraising, which um, we, you know, actually costs a huge amount of money and invest a huge amount of time to actually return not not that much and return funding in the long run. It's very attractive to get funding from those sources because it can become resilient, long-term, unrestricted funding. But um, actually, we're not that brilliant at doing it because our model's a little bit uh, more complex, maybe, and we and we struggle to sell it in a nutshell. So that's one thing about the kind of the the, the way in which we've created a fundraising strategy one of the things we've learned is that if you can um, build an evidence base for your impact and and that you're generating value for money impact you're in a great position to raise unrestricted or strategic funding from trusts and foundations which is obviously the best type of funding to back you as an organization rather than to back a particular project which restricts you and doesn't allow you to spend money where you really need to spend money and one of the things i always tell funders who have attempted uh, to say we want to give you this money but we want to give it for a particular particular need is um, that if you don't trust the organization to spend the money in the way we think it should be spent then don't trust the project if you see what I mean because it's if you're saying we're going to tell you where you need to be spending the money it's actually effectively saying you don't trust the organization to make the calls one of the most important things over the last few years is, is to um, build an evidence base uh, which allows funders to be able to see that the way in which we're working, uh, we're delivering value for money impact. And we've done that uh, in two ways. One is by building an internal monitoring and evaluation function, which has allowed us to just record the outputs of the organization, which might be the numbers of students enrolled in the school, the retention of students through the school, the exam performance. And then the uh, the second way in which we would uh, want to build the evidence base is by commissioning external evaluations, which provide objectivity and independence on top of our own internal data, and then supporting those external evaluations with our internal monitoring evaluation team. Once you have those two combined, you can build a level of trust in the fact that your existing work is having impact and you can combine that with a clear strategy and vision to build support, uh, general support for the organization rather than support for one particular program or project within the organization. And when you get to that stage, you're in a situation where you have much more flexibility with the money coming into the organization. Right, right. Is that more challenging to prove? And is it a different part of the organization even that might be dealing with that kind of thing? Yeah, we, we, we have uh, 1.5 uh, people in the UK dedicated to monitoring and evaluation. Having them as a slightly independent team from the team driving the programs is quite a healthy process so that they can make sure that the data they're collecting is truly objective and they're less tempted to game the numbers and that builds further confidence from external parties as well but also just allows you to have transparent accurate data for management internally so that you can set your strategy in a way which is sensitive to numerical information and data coming through from the organization rather than hearsay or what people would like to think was happening. 
Right, right. And and when it comes to talking to these foundations and trusts, can you talk a little bit about that? Is there some sense in which you, you need to go through the earlier phase of getting program-related funding before you can get to the next stage? Or have you learned how to find those either those funds that, that are willing to provide you know more unrestricted capital? Or what have you learned about that? If you don't have that evidence base, there's two possible ways, I think, that, that uh, all major donors. The first is to have a theory of change and a small pilot, um, which is convincing enough to enterprise organizations and startup type funders that are prepared to you know, back you with unrestricted funds to allow you to scale and test an idea and build the evidence base. And those, those organizations very much exist, um, although they can only take you so far. Uh, the other unrestricted funding is by getting individuals or organizations to back um, the leader of the of the organization on the basis of personal trust or or feeling confident that the leader's got something about them. So there are definitely people out there that that sort of want to to back individuals as much as ideas as well. And so there's those two sources. And then of course you can just fundraise in more traditional ways, doing events and building up unrestricted incomes that allow you to do what you want to do but don't depend so much on the evidence base that you have uh, that you're actually going to have you mentioned that zambia now they can provide education uh, without charging any fees to the students is there a sweet spot is there some place there i mean that is an ideal scenario but you need a specific kind of support i guess to do that what kinds of organizations or what support have you had on your journey as a social entrepreneur that have been helpful to you and that might you might recommend others to to think about the most important have been a few individuals who've been both trustees and mentors, uh, particularly during the early years of the organization. I was lucky enough to um, be mentored and supported by um, David Townsend, who was the chair of the organization for a while, um, Brett Wigdors, who was the chief executive of Teach First and who'd set up Teach First a few years before I set up Pease and uh, Parash Mashru, who um, was a, 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 an accountant and finance expert. And the combination of the, of the three of those uh, guys, as well as a number of other trustees in the early years, was, was critical to the development of the organization. I was also lucky enough to get um, pro bono consultancy support to develop our strategies from Oliver Wyman um, Management Consultancy. And uh, we've managed over, over the years to have a few different organizations providing pro bono support. So that, that's, all been, that's all been a great help. And I guess the lesson is asking is important. I've spoken to other uh, social entrepreneurs that have been very successful, basically asking people for help and asking people will they reduce their fees and asking people for pro bono. And it may be an area that not uh, that there's more potential for social entrepreneurs than they realize. Yeah, I think so. And it's um, it's not just asking. It's about uh, in in the conversations you have, if you're passionate about something, um, it comes up and uh, and the more conversations you have, the more you you just get someone saying, oh, I know someone that might be of interest. And then you follow that up. And uh, quite often the direct ask isn't isn't the, the way that things end up happening. It's the it's the just letting people know what you're doing. They're being passionate about it, getting someone else excited about it. And then they they come to you um, if, if you're asking someone then you're in a situation of much uh, kind of 
weaker leverage because you don't necessarily at that point have their full buy-in. An interesting insight. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much, John, for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs today and share your insights uh, on this journey. And I wish you the very best success with Peas in the future. Thanks, Fergal. Really good to speak to you. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.